It's worth turning to 1 John chapter 2 and we're looking at verses 12 to 17 which is on page 1225 of the Church Bibles. 1 John 2 verses 12 to 17. I think if you were to make a list of the world's most dangerous places, I imagine we come up with all sorts of locations, all sorts of regions, uh, war-torn regions perhaps, desolate and dry desert regions, perhaps even uh, precarious mountaintops where there's very little oxygen and very good chance of falling. Or maybe if we were to talk about uh, creatures in our world and areas where they're dangerous, you may well point towards an area like my homeland, Australia, where virtually every second creature you come across is bent on killing you. We have, uh, I think, most of the deadly snakes in the world and most of the deadly spiders. I guess every country has to excel at something. And that's what we've chosen. But I suspect that uh, if you were to uh, sort of zero in on these places, not many people would rush to put England on their list as one of the world's most dangerous places or maybe even more specifically Sheffield or Fullwood as being up there as a world's danger zone. And yet there's crime, isn't there? And and there is discomfort, but uh, there's not a war just around the corner, at least not in this area. And unless, uh, unless the ducks of Forge Dam uh, down the road or the, uh, the sheep of the Mayfield Valley suddenly developed a killer instinct, we're probably going to be okay in sunny forward. But sometimes danger can be where we least expect it. Sometimes uh, you can feel you're quite safe and all of a sudden danger is just around the corner. Let me give you an example. This comes from California. And it's a, uh, I'm not sure whether this story is true or not, to be honest, but uh, I love it anyway. Here's an example of where danger can be just around the corner where you least expect it. In California, there were many wildfires and, and forest fires. It's part of uh, the natural cycle in the forest. And brave firefighters are in there living, extinguishing these fires day after day. And recently, fire marshals found a corpse in a rural section of California while they were assessing the damage of a recent forest fire. The deceased male that they found was dressed in diving gear consisting of uh, a recently melted wetsuit, a dive tank, flippers and a face mask. None of the things you would expect to find in a forest. Apparently the man had obviously been uh, undergoing uh, some sort of recreational diving uh, activity in the recent period But a post-mortem of the examination attributed the death not to burns but to massive internal injuries. Salt water was found in his stomach and the dental records provided a positive ID of a man who had been reported missing a week before. The next of kin were notified and investigators then set about determining how a fully clad diver ended up in the middle of a forest fire. It was discovered that on the day of the fire the deceased had set out on a diving trip in the Pacific Ocean. His third dive was some 20 kilometres away from the location of this fire, this fire that was threatening a town. And so the firefighters were getting anxious and they had called in a fleet of helicopters to saturate the fire with water. The helicopters towed massive buckets underneath them and these buckets were dropped into the ocean and they scooped up a pile of water and then flew across to the fire and dumped their load and you can guess what happened. One minute our diver is marvelling at the fish 
amazed at the scenery, maybe a bit scared about a shark or something coming along, but not thinking for one second that he would be scooped up in a bucket. (laughs) But that is exactly what happened and he was scooped up and he experienced rapid decompression caused by the altitude change, suddenly followed by a plummet into burning trees. Now divers and pilots have been warned because of this story to remain on alert at all times. Divers are encouraged to remain calm if they are scooped from the water (laughs) and to hang on to the bucket (laughs) when the water is dumped onto the fire and decompression chambers will be available immediately upon landing. Danger can be where you least expect it. And I put it to you tonight that living in forward in Sheffield in the UK is just as dangerous as scuba diving in the Pacific. In fact, I put it to you that it's pretty much the most dangerous place you could fear to find yourself. If you're a Christian and you live in this world, you are in the midst of a very real and present danger. So much so that as we continue our look at 1 John together, we come to a verse that warns Christians who live in this world, even those far away from obvious dangers like sword or famine or or weird creatures, to be very wary about getting too close to the world that they live in because it is extremely dangerous. Have a look at 1 John 2 verse 15. See the stark warning given to Christians from God's word. Do not love the world, says John, or anything in the world. Don't love it. Have nothing to do with it. Strong stuff, isn't it? Confusing. And this warning seems to fly directly in the face of the attitude we know God has towards his world. John, who writes this letter, wrote elsewhere in his Gospel, in the most famous verse in the whole Bible, John 3.16, God so loved the world and yet here in 1 John 2 he is telling us to do the exact opposite. And he drives the point home as verse 15 goes along. He says, as far as he is concerned, love for God and love for God's ways are mutually exclusive to love of the world. There is no crossover between the two. If anyone loves the world, John says, the love of the Father is not in him. If you are a Christian, if you love God, then have nothing to do with the world, says John. Well, how can this be? Why are we to stay away from this world, not to get too close, not to, not to grow attached to it, not to love it? Because I've got to be honest, as, as I look at the world that I live in, there's much to love, isn't there? Don't you love the world? I love music, for instance. How good is music? I, I can't play a note to save myself. I'm completely tone deaf and yet I love music. I can't work without music. I drive with music. I reckon life is meant to have a soundtrack how good is music or food or the ocean? You know that moment when you sort of dive under a wave and the wave itself pulls you back up. Maybe you don't know that experience but uh, it's a good one. Humour, drama, comedy, learning, there's so much in this world to love. And it shouldn't be a surprise that we live uh, in a world, especially uh, this part of the world, so abundantly blessed naturally and economically and peacefully that there's so much to love about that experience. Especially when you realise that God created it. 
with all its colour, all its creativity, all its culture is embedded with the work of his hand. It was very good. So how can it be that living in such a place we are told not to love it? We are told that we are in very real danger, danger that should see us not wanting to get too caught up in it, to have nothing to do with it. Well, the Bible's answer to that is that there are three very real dangers, three enemies that have entered this world that wage battle against a Christian, three destroyers of this very good, very loved world. Now, if you've ever been to a baptism, you'll know the words that are said straight after the actual baptism has occurred. These are the words. You will fight bravely under Christ's banner against sin, the world and the devil. Now, the guys who put the prayer book together were, were smart guys. They've distilled all the dangers, all the things that could possibly derail a Christian into these three things. The enemy of sin, the world and the devil. This is what makes the world such a dangerous place. Think about it. We know the enemy of sin well. Sin at its heart is is human's declaration of autonomy against God. Our decision to sort of live in his world as if he wasn't there. To live and to act and to speak as if we were in charge. That's what sin is at its heart. And our world is riddled with it. With humanity both individually and corporately making that declaration, forget you God. John says, don't love that. Don't have anything to do with it. Then there's the enemy of the devil. The Bible says there's more than just human arrogance and rebellion at play in this world. There is also the work of the evil one, the passage calls him, who from the very first pages of the Bible makes it his job to promote sin, to promote that attitude of rebellion. He says God can't be trusted and sin, rebellion, is the logical way forward. Satan's job is to take that which was very good and to screw it all up, mess it up, to take that which is true about God and this world and to shout lies against it. And the Bible says in 1 John 5.19 that he is the ruler of this world. He is in charge. John says, don't love him or anything to do with him. The enemy of sin, the enemy of the devil and finally the enemy of the world. I think here is where we get to the heart of what John is warning us against in verse 15. You see, because of sin and because of the devil's rule, we, the world, become our own worst enemies. When John commands us not to love the world, he is talking about the whole human system set up around sinfulness and Satan's rule. That's the Bible's picture of our world. It's an extremely dangerous place, says John. Dangerous for those who love God. It is a world that God himself entered, a world he loves, he made it. And yet it's a world that does not acknowledge him. There is a dark side to this world, to human society, to the human community set up in a way to ensure God is excluded. Where human beings and our current opinions and our current ethical systems and our current concerns rule the day. And the thought that God would be brought into the, the, the hub-hub of this world, the, the nitty-gritty of our lives, is anathema. 
Our world may present as indifferent towards God, but when it gets its hands on him, it crucifies him. And so this is the world that John warns us against in verse 15. It's a world we find ourselves in the midst of, so often not seeing it for what it is, not seeing the great enemies of the Christian life at play here, the sin, the world and the devil all around us. We get used to it, don't we? We get comfortable perhaps even a little fond of it. I'm not sure if they allow this experiment uh, in science classes anymore. I think it was being phased out as I was going through high school, but the experiment involves a frog and a pot of water. It's a pretty simple experiment. There's, there's two very different reactions a frog has. If you drop a frog into a pot of boiling water, it leaps straight out. It knows exactly the danger it's finding itself in. You put that same frog in uh, lukewarm water and you slowly warm it up, boil the water. The frog has no idea what's going on. Slowly boiling away. (laughs) Pretty cruel, isn't it? They don't allow that, I'm sure, anymore. (laughs) We might laugh, but John is saying that's exactly the position we're in in this world. We think we're in this warm bath. How good is this world? Well, John jolts us out of that bath, showing us the waters that we are swimming in. And while society and its king, Satan, will say in a million ways, come on in, the water's great. John says, wake up, you're boiling. Don't love the world, he says. And just in case we've missed how serious the danger is, he spells it out for us even more (coughs) starkly in verse 16. He outlines the three defining traits of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. He says these are the things that describe our world. These are its common activities. Let's have a look at them. Firstly, it's described in verse 16, the cravings of sinful man, literally the desire of the flesh. It's the outlook, the the sort of the way of looking at, at life that's all about physical pleasure. And not just physical pleasure as God designed, but one that is wholly focused on the self. We pursue that pleasure at the expense of God and at the expense of everyone around us. It's a way of life that takes the glorious goodness of this creation and extracts from it all that which is good. And then it tries to reshape that in its own image and it grows to love and lust after that image. And the Bible says it's as strong a lust as there is. Our world is obsessed with physical desires. Whether they be the, the lusts of the gutter or the lusts of the gourmet, you know, the finest food, the finest wine. And rather than seeing these things as a good gift from God, all of a sudden they become the thing that drives us on, the thing we must have. And sadly... Most often it's focused on that desire which seems to promise the most, the strongest one, the sexual desire. I think that's what John is talking about in this verse. This great good gift from God, but when cut adrift from him it gets its own momentum. It becomes God. Seems like a cliche, doesn't it, to to think that it would be as simple as that, that, that that's the great enemy in this world. And it is a cliche. The devil doesn't have to be that original. We're not as smart as we think we are. 
And so if you look at our newspapers, our TV shows, our music, our movies, you name it, it is soaked in sex. Things designed to promote this craving. If you don't believe me, go to the newspaper stands tomorrow, go to a petrol station where you see them lined up in those plastic containers. So many of them with sex on the front cover saying, you need this. You think the newspapers were written by a 14-year-old adolescent boy, but they're not. They're written by adults, sold to adults. And as Christians, we think we can read these newspapers, we can watch TV week after week, these shows with bad relationships, shows with sex all twisted up and think that it has no effect on us. It's amazing how often shows that seem quite, uh, quite banal, quite indifferent, not that dangerous at all, we end up cheering on this sort of relationship. I remember watching a show that uh, I've got to confess that I've got into in recent times called Grey's Anatomy. Terrible show, really, but uh, it's hard not to watch it. And You end up watching this show and you end up cheering on this shocking relationship and you go, yes, I hope this works. You are a frog in the water. And that's our world's way of operating. They take a very good gift from God, they rip it out of its context and then they talk, talk, talk to us about it. We swim in this stuff. And so we need to see clearly, as John is showing us in these verses, just what water we do swim in. Because these desires that our world holds up as what we need to strive after, they cannot possibly deliver on the promises they make. They're deceitful. This is captured perfectly in this uh, story recounted by Malcolm Muggeridge. It's a story of uh, before he became a Christian when he was working as a journalist in India. He says he went down uh, to swim in the river at the bottom of his property at the end of the day. The sun was setting. It was a lovely time of day as he entered the river and saw across the river a woman who had come to take her bath. And Muggeridge says he felt instant lust for her. He'd struggled for years with this kind of desire and he'd fought it off out of loyalty and fidelity to his wife. But now he had made up his mind that this would be the time he'd crossed the line of fidelity. And so he swam as fast as he could towards the woman, trying, he said, to outswim his conscience, thinking about how good the consummation of the lust would be. When he was about a metre away, he emerged from the water And he says, any desire that had gripped me before then paled into insignificance compared with the shattering devastation he felt when he looked at her. She was old and hideous. Her skin was flaked and wrinkled and worst of all, she was a leper. This creature grinned at me, showing a toothless mask. The experience left Muggeridge trembling and muttering under his breath, what a dirty, lecherous woman. But then the rude shock of it all dawned on him. It's not the woman who was lecherous, but his own heart. John says, do not love the world. The second trait that he shows us is uh, very similar to that. He He calls it the lust of the eyes, the desire of the eyes. The book of Job warns us against this. It says, our hearts are led away by our eyes. Our hearts which belong to God are wooed by what we see around us. And it's a great danger for us living uh, in the Western world. What we see very often becomes a thing that we need, that we want. 
Our eyes are bombarded with stuff, stuff that's not ours, that we don't need, that we may never need. And yet it's there. I mean, take for instance the, the massive shopping centre in Sheffield. It's called the Land of Shopportunity. The lust of the eyes. You go there, all this opportunity to buy stuff. And it's so easy. We, we've got to the point as a, as a culture, as a society, where, where you go there just, just for the heck of it. You don't have a plan of what you're going to buy. You just go there in the hope that you'll find that thing. And we do the same even with, with something as boring as groceries. You, you go to Tesco or Sainsbury's and you know that all the things you actually need are on the outside and the milk they put down the back so you have to go all the way down to get it. And you know all the stuff in the middle you don't really need or most of the time you don't need and yet somehow, if you're like me, you end up going down aisle after aisle after aisle just in case you've missed something that you really need and you end up at home with all these ridiculous products and you say, how did I end up with jalapeno and chilli sauce. I don't even like hot stuff. <laughs> so easy. And these words in 1 John 2.16 were written before advertising and marketing and pop-up ads and, and mail-out brochures and TV and billboards. Think about how much more our eyes are filled with this stuff every day and it begins from childhood. I, I was watching TV with uh, Finn last week. Liz was away and so this was our babysitter, the television. We were watching it together and, uh, and in between two of his shows they leave about ten minutes between the end of one show and the start of another and it's just filled with ads of kids' toys and he says, Dad, I want that. And then the next breath is, what is that? <laughs> and that's us as well. We, we go to the land of opportunity. Sure, there's something I need. Don't love the world, says John. And finally, he gives us the logical outcome of these two desires. Having experienced the pleasure of the flesh and the accumulation of all this stuff, we soak in our own conquests, our own achievements. We're like the King Nebuchadnezzar in, in Daniel, looking over Babylon. He says, Is not this Babylon the great that I have made? It's the default of our world. You cut God out of the equation and when you look around at your own little kingdom, all the things that you've accumulated, who else can you thank but yourself? We are surrounded by the world in it up to our necks. How do you overcome all this? Not get swept up in it. How do you not grow to love all this? To fight against sin, the world and the devil. It's a battle. And it's a battle that we appear to be outnumbered in. How do you fight bravely when you are ridiculously outnumbered? As C.S. Lewis calls it, he says the world is enemy-occupied territory. We're not on home soil and our enemy is strong and unrelenting. The desires and the pride of our world is always at our heels, shaping our thoughts, our hearts, our decisions. It's like the, uh, the terrible rock musician Frank Zappa once said, he said, in the fight between you and the world, back the world. Hard not to feel that way. Have we been set up for a fall? Fight against sin, the world and the devil, I was told as a baby and I told three that this morning. Is it a hopeless cause? It seems like uh, what, what's being asked of us here is that we stand in the middle of a battlefield all alone or at least amongst a pretty small band of soldiers and in front of us charges the enemy of sin we know too well. As Romans 7 says, it's always at us. And on the right flank is the devil with his lies and accusations and on the left, well, there's the world with its desires 
hopeless. Well, let me take you to another battlefield just briefly in 2 Samuel 23 that was read out for us earlier by Phil and he did very well with all the names. We're going to have a look at verse 11 and 12. 2 Samuel 23, it's on page 331. Now I love this bit, it's it's sort of stuck right at the end of 2 Samuel and it speaks of Samuel's mighty men, these incredible guys, they sort of single-handedly destroy armies. There's only three of them. The middle one is my favourite, Shammah, son of Agi, the Hararite. It says in verse 11, When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down. I love that picture. You imagine it, this one mighty man standing in the middle of the field and the impression I get is he's totally fearless. I almost get this impression he's got this cheeky grin on his face as this whole army charges at him and one by one he cuts them down, completely confident of the outcome. I don't know about you, but I don't feel anywhere near that mighty in this world. I struggle with my own sin, let alone being surrounded by the sin of others. And the world's desires are very appealing. And it's easy to let Satan's lies about those things seduce us, isn't it? How is it that we can fight mightily under God's banner against sin, the world and the devil? Well, that's why John has written this letter for us. He writes to a small band of Christians under attack from these very same enemies. Even worse, a band of Christians that have had any confidence they might have had, any hope of holding the field, sucked out from them by false teachers. Teachers who've come in amongst them and have claimed that they're the only ones who know God. They're the only ones who are free from sin. You're still stuck in it. And Jesus is not who you think he is. He is not God. And so they've left this weak band of soldiers feeling totally exposed. And so John writes to them, firstly to expose the claims of these false teachers as lies, satanic lies as we will see next week. And secondly he writes, as we have seen in recent weeks, to fill these Christians again with a confident joy, to give them back their courage as they face these enemies. And so if you look at verses 12 to 14, what John is doing for us there is he is recapping all the things that we have seen so far. He says, if you want to stand guard, if you want to guard your heart so it stays in love with God and not with this world, then remember what I've written to you. Because unlike these false teachers who've come amongst them, his testimony is true. These are the words of the Apostle John, the one who heard Jesus, saw him, touched him, walked with him. He writes these words so they can be completely confident as Christians. 1 John 2, 12-14 is like the ultimate half-time speech. Here you have uh, this rabble of Christians very much under the pump, feeling hopeless, sort of England half-time during the week in the soccer. This is the sort of speech that would inspire anybody. John knows that the only thing that makes them strong for battle is God's word dwelling in them, as he says in verse 14. And so he speaks to them that word. And he says four things a Christian needs to know if they're going to fight bravely in this world. You see there, verse 12, the first one. So simple. Your sins have been forgiven. 
because of Jesus. He speaks first to the children and children is really his favourite term for the whole church. He's speaking to them all. Every child needs to know before the battle that his sins have been dealt with, that there's nothing hanging over his head. Gone. Because of who Jesus is and because of what he has done. Here in one sentence, John has met two of our great enemies head on, sin and the devil. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, those of us who are honest know that we sin. To deny it is to kid yourself. But John says if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ. For the one who trusts Jesus, there is no condemnation. And yet one of Satan's great tricks is to accuse us of sin, to, to make us think that we're stuck in it, that we can't get free of it. But if Satan or anyone else accuses us, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, who holds out the worth of his own blood and righteousness and knows that it is enough. And so as you stand as a Christian in the world, be completely confident God has forgiven you. Secondly, in verses 13 and verse 14, he says, not only have you been forgiven, but you know God. Forgiveness is wonderful, but what it leads on to is out of this world. As we saw a few weeks back, those who are forgiven, who stand righteous in God's sight, are in fellowship with the Father and his Son, face to face with God, we saw, in his presence, delighting in him. And interesting, you see there in verse 13 and 14, he says this to two different people, first to the children, to the whole church, and then he says it to the fathers, who are probably a reference to the elders of this Christian community, the leaders. He says even for them, what they need to know is just the same. Authentic Christian life is marked by a deepening fellowship with God, a fellowship we enjoy when we meet him in his word. And so as you stand as a Christian in the world, remember that you are in fellowship with God. He is with you. He is enough. He is the way. And he will never leave you or forsake you. The third thing John says to them in this speech before the battle, he says, know this, verse 13, you have overcome the evil one. This time John turns his focus to the young men in the battle, the, the next generation if you like. I imagine that the fathers that he was speaking to have fought many a battle against these enemies. But now it's the turn of these young men to be in the front line. And as they see the enemies coming at them, as they stand in this field and as the enemy of sin, the world and the devil charges at them, what could be better than what John says to them in verse 13? You have overcome the evil one. Amazing words. Hear them again tonight. We are in a battle, surrounded by the world, called not to be swept away by it. It seems impossible and yet we're told that while this battle rages all around us, the war was won long ago. Young men, says John, commit yourselves to the front line without fear. You have overcome the evil one. And finally he tells them one more thing in verse 17. The world is passing away. The victory is confirmed for us in, in these final words. Not only are we promised victory over Satan, but also the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever, says John. 
I love this verse. Here at last you see the secret of being a mighty man or a mighty woman of God. How do you hold strong against the world? What's the secret? Well, Frank Zappa is wrong. In the battle between you and the world, don't back the world. It's passing away. We are surrounded, but we have no fear. John says, don't invest your heart in that which is about to go bust. He says all of this, the whole godless system, the desires of the flesh, the pride of the human heart will beat no more. You say that tomorrow at at uni or at work or with friends and you'll look like a fool. But hear John's testimony. And like Shammah, the mighty man of God, take your stand in the midst of this world with confident joy. And just as we finish, just in case you've misunderstood what John is saying here, let me take you once more to Shammah in 2 Samuel 23. Have a look at the end of verse 12 where you've got this amazing feat of Shammah as he defeats an entire army on a field. And just in case you think Shammah is the hero of this tale, have a look at the end of verse, verse 12. And the Lord brought about a great victory. As you fight bravely against sin, the world and the devil, remember you are not the hero of this tale. Look again at John's battle speech in 1 John 2 as he speaks to these children, these fathers, these young men. Do you see the nature of the confidence he gives them? He says, you have been forgiven. You have known him. You have overcome. Not will, but have In fact, the verbs he uses here are in the perfect tense, a tense which talks of an event well in the past that just has ongoing effects as far as the eye can see. And so as we stand alone in this battlefield of the world, we realise I'm not the hero of this day. The hero is one who hung on a cross in another field, a field called Calvary, many, many years before. It's by his wounds that I am forgiven. By his wounds that I am known by him who was from the beginning and by his wounds that I overcome. I'm not the hero. My job and your job is simple. Trust him. Verse 17, you see it there? The one who does the will of God lives forever. Obey him. Heed his commands. He is the king of the battle and his commands, well, 1 John 5 verse 4 tells us that they are not burdensome. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. Who is it that overcomes the world, says John? The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Trust him. I remember hearing a a song once by an Australian band and they were talking about a scene they saw way out in country Australia of this ridiculous guy in this dry riverbed. He was standing there and he stood there most days apparently with this big rubber tyre around him in this dry riverbed where it hadn't rained in decades and he was sort of the object of derision by the locals. What is this fool doing? Easy to feel that way in this world as someone who trusts Jesus. You'll look a fool but those who hold tight to Jesus, who listen to his voice above all others, Those who do the will of God live forever. And once the enemies of God have done their worst, the mighty man of God still stands. Let's pray.